Brothers and sisters, let's take our Bibles and let's turn for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. Today we're going to look at Psalm 51. Psalm 51, and we'll look together at verses 1 through 12. And I'll ask if you'll please stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. Psalm 51, 1 through 12. This is God's holy word for us today. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is God's holy word, inspired by God, given to us, for us today. Let's ask God to bless his word. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading, and now especially the preaching of this word, this powerful word. And may you take its truth and don't let it just live in an abstract realm of concepts and ideas, but write it upon our very hearts and mark our lives by it and stamp it upon our souls so that we get conformed to your word, so that we embody the truth of your word, so that we live it out and carry it with us and think about it and feel it and put it into practice in our lives each day. Lord, you have the power that no one else has. You have the words of eternal life. You have the words that can make us new and clean and free. So speak your word and give us ears to hear. And our reward will be to give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This morning we are continuing our... Our brief six-week series during the season of Lent. <clears throat> and our topic is the theme of Lent itself. Our topic is repentance. And what we're doing in the first three weeks is we're looking at three great benefits of repentance for us. And in the second three weeks, we will look at the requirements of repentance from us. We start with the benefits, and then we go on to the requirements, because that's the order of the gospel. 
you don't start with, here's what you got to do, and then we'll get to the grace. No, we start with the grace. We start with the gift. We start with promise, and then we move on to response, which is obedience. So last week we began by looking at the first benefit of repentance in this series about the topic of repentance through Lent. Lent is the season where we focus on this aspect of the gospel. And it is an aspect of the gospel. There are ideas out there that say repentance is something else besides the gospel. No need to repent. Pray your prayer and you're good to go. And repentance comes later, if at all, because it's optional. That idea is out there and it's been around for a long time. Do not be misled. The gospel includes not just turning to Jesus and bringing your sin with you, as in living in it still. The gospel is turning away from sin and leaving it behind and coming to Christ, who replaces that old sin with a new life of righteousness. This is a gospel topic, repentance. And last week we saw the first gospel benefit of repentance, and that is repentance is healing. It's healing to us. We looked at Psalm 32 last week, and we saw how David was wasting away spiritually and feeling the effects physically in his body, in his mind, because he was hiding his sin. He was harboring it instead of dealing with it. But when David confessed his sin in Psalm 32, and he brought it to God, David rejoiced at the blessedness of being forgiven. And right at the heart of the gospel is forgiveness of sin. That old sin that David was carrying around, he brought it to God, he gave it to God, and God does with our sin what he loves to do with our sin. And that's not crush us and condemn us. It's forgive us. That's what God wants from you, Christian. Lay down your sin. Stop hiding and harboring. Open it up. Confess it. Acknowledge it. Bring it to him and let him do what he does best with sin. Forgive it and heal the damage that sin has done to us. Forgiveness, that word of forgiveness is salvation for our souls. It's salvation for our burdened, guilty conscience. It's salvation for a troubled mind. It's salvation for the one who just hasn't been able to forgive him or herself yet for what has been done. This is salvation to the life of a sinner inside and out, hearing that word of forgiveness. When you know you're wrong and you go to that person you've wronged and you say, please forgive me, and that person says, I forgive you, and reconciliation happens and the relationship can get back to where it was, man, that is life-giving. That's what the first benefit of repentance is. It brings healing. It brings healing. And repentance is the only path to that healing, life-giving blessedness that David describes in Psalm 32. What a tremendous benefit the healing of repentance is when we get forgiven. How it heals our mind, our conscience, our soul, and begins to set our lives right. Today we come to the second benefit of repentance, which is cleansing. Repentance is cleansing. 
The first benefit, healing, addressed sin as a spiritual and psychological disease. Like a malignant growth on the conscience that needs to be healed. The second benefit, cleansing, addresses sin as a legal and a moral stain. And this brings us to our first point today. In what sense is sin something that needs to be cleansed? Well, in our passage, David refers to two senses in which sin is a stain that needs to be cleansed. Sin is a legal stain, and sin is a moral stain. Or as I've called this point, sin involves both crimes and uncleanness. Sin involves both crimes and uncleanness. In other words, sin leaves us before God with a blemished record and a blemished heart. And we need God to cleanse or to clean our record and to clean or cleanse our hearts. A bad record and a bad heart. That's what sin gives us. And that's what needs to be cleaned up. And that's what the benefit of repentance is that we look at today. So let's look at our text to see these two stains, the moral and the legal. First, let's look for the legal stains of sin. The legal stains of sin, those crimes against God's law that give us a blemished record that needs to be cleansed. Let's begin by looking at verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, For I know my transgressions, David says, and my sin is ever before me. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Hebrew, when we look at a psalm, we're looking at Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew poetry doesn't use rhyme at the end of the line like a lot of English poetry does. Hebrew poetry uses parallelisms. Conceptual parallelisms. And so in, in verse 3, you have two lines. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. So having your sin before you and knowing your sin are the same thing. It's before you. You know it. You're conscious of it. You're aware of it. And then transgressions parallels sin. So in verse 3, transgressions are equated with sin. In other words, sin is a transgression. And transgression is a legal term. It's a word for crossing a line. You've transgressed a boundary, crossed a line. And what's that line? It's God's law. We have transgressed God's law, broken God's law, violated God's law, gone against His will, gone against His word, gone against His law. And what do you call a lawbreaker? Someone who goes around breaking laws? Those are crimes. <laughs> Sin is a criminal act because we have God's law before us and we violate it. We cross the, the boundary. We transgress. We commit crimes against God's law. We offend the justice of God. 
That's the first thing. That's a bad record. When you build up all of these lawless deeds, you break the law enough times and you amass all these blemishes on your record. He broke this law and this law and this law and this law. (laughs) He's broken that and done this and done this. It's a big old rap sheet that we have (laughs) for all the things, all the different laws that we've broken. That's what sin is in verse 3. And then again, verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. We're talking about God being justified and blameless when he judges our sins. Because, David says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil. Sin is ultimately something we do against God, even when it involves sinning against your neighbor. Sin is against other people sometimes, maybe even most of the time. But every time we commit a sin against another person, like David has done, which is what inspired this psalm in the first place, it's ultimately against God. And in a sense, it's really God that has been wronged. Against you, you only have I sinned in this ultimate sense. It's not mere man's laws we violated. It's God's laws so that God is justified in judging us, he says. Now, what's amazing is that this psalm, if you look, most Bibles should have this. If you look just above verse 1, there's a little inscription, and it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he, David, had gone into Bathsheba. So after David is unfaithful to his wife, after David has this affair with another man's wife, and then, if you go back to read the story, David gets Bathsheba pregnant. Well, this is bad, so he's got to try and cover it up, right? This is part of Psalm 32. When I covered my sin, when I hid my sin, how did he cover it? He sends Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, who's a soldier in David's army. He sends Uriah out to the front of the fiercest part of the battle and then tells his troops, like, hey, sound the retreat, but don't tell, uh, sound the retreat, but don't tell Uriah, okay? Just sort of back up. And then let him find himself out there on the field, and it'll look like he got just killed in war. Right? So he orchestrates this man's death to cover it up. <laughs> so David has sinned pretty egregiously, deeply sinned. And he kept it covered up until a prophet went into him and pointed his finger in the king's face and said, You are guilty of this sin against God. Not just against Uriah, not just against Bathsheba, not just against your troops, not just against your, your people, not just against your kingdom. You've sinned ultimately against God. And so David goes to God and he says, against you and you only have I done this, this which is evil in your sight. It's a transgression of God's law. We've committed an evil action. Sin is equated with evil and it gets God's guilty verdict as it says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So sin is a transgression. Sin gives us a bad record. It gives us a blemished record. It's a legal stain upon us. We stand before God and before his law as guilty. Next, let's look for the moral stains of sin. 
the uncleanness that gives us a blemished heart that needs to be cleansed. The problem's not just external. We've broken an external law, but the problem's also internal. We have an unclean heart. This is in verses 5 and 6. David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So there David is confessing to God that I am a sinner from the womb. It's not that I came out holy and innocent before God and then went astray somewhere down the road, took a wrong turn in life, and ended up committing this sin and sort of accidentally backed into it. No. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That we're born sinners, David says. I am born with this moral corruption in me. We're not born basically good. We're not born pure and perfect like Adam early in the morning. We come out with corruption in our hearts, a twistedness, a moral twistedness. Now, we haven't actually committed any sins yet. So in that sense, we're innocent, right? We haven't done a sinful thing yet. But that sin lives in our hearts, and it naturally comes out because we are fallen. We come out with moral corruption. In verse, uh, in verse uh, 6, there's two parts to verse 6. In the first part, it says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. God delights in truth in the inward being. That's not a record thing, a legal thing. That's a who we are as a person thing, our moral nature. You delight in truth in the inward being, not falsehood. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. You want truth in my inner being and you want wisdom, right living in my heart. The first part where it says you delight in truth in the inward being, well, this is precisely what David lacks. He's been hiding his sin. He tried to cover it up. This is exactly what David doesn't have. He lacks truth in his inward being. He has a spirit that's full of deceit and treachery and twistedness and moral perversion. The second half of verse 6, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart, this is what David ignores. <laughs> David has God's word. He has God's spirit. He's a saved man. And yet he has done something remarkably evil. A series of things that just get worse as they go. The sins are piling up. He knows better. David didn't sin out of, you know, just sheer ignorance. Wow, I had no idea I should have. Uh, wow, I didn't know I shouldn't have been doing those things, Lord. You know, he can't say, I didn't know the gun was loaded. He can't claim ignorance. God has taught him wisdom. God has shown him how he should live. He knows that he's violating God's law. This isn't a mystery to David. And yet he sins intentionally. He crosses those boundaries on purpose. And maybe the day before he, he would have said, Oh, I'll ne I would never do that. And then the next day, David did do that. Because sin, it just warps us inside and turns us into these walking contradictions. Because, you know, a week before David sinned, sinned with Bathsheba and covered it up, you know, and if he had said, I would never do that, I guarantee you he would have meant it sincerely and felt it. But David has this other side of him 
that absolutely wanted to do that sin and did it when the opportunity came. Because both things were true of David at once. Sin makes us contradictions to ourself. Where we sincerely don't want to sin one minute and then we sincerely do the next. Sin has us divided against our own selves. This is Romans 7. The very things I hate are the things I end up doing. The things I don't want to do are the things that I just always end up doing. Because in one moment you don't want to do them and the next minute you do. And we are contradictions to ourselves and we all know better. There is God's law. There is our conscience. We know better. We do it anyway. What's the problem there? It's our hearts. We don't just have an unclean record or we've broken some rules. We have unclean hearts that like uncleanness or that like sin, that have a taste for it. And that's a problem. That's why in Hebrew, Hebrew is a very vivid, picturesque kind of language. And in Hebrew, some of the words for sin really do mean twistedness. Where you get your wires all jumbled up into a knot and you just get all gnarled and twisted inside, morally. Our hearts get like that. They get tied in knots. And we do the tying. Sin is a bad record and it's a bad heart. Crimes and uncleanness are the problem. So this is what sin does to us. It stains our records and it stains our hearts. And we are guilty before God and we're unclean before God. We are sinners inside and outside. So what do we do? Where do we turn? Well, if you look at verse 4, David says, I've done what's evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. It sure seems like the verdict is already in. It's not that David knows he's a sinner, but he just hasn't gone to trial yet. And we're waiting for the jury and the evidence and the, and the cross-examination. And, you know, it's not like the, the, the jury's still out. It sounds like he's known to be guilty. Like, it's overwhelmingly obvious you're guilty. And it sounds like the verdict's already in. The gavel has already come down. Guilty has already been recorded as the official judgment of the court. It seems like the judge has already ruled against us, and it's over. It is just over. We are sinners. God knows it. We know it. The world knows it. It's over. This brings us to point two. God's tribunal has two courts. Two courts. It has a court of judgment and a court of appeals. The court of judgment is ruled by strict justice. According to the righteousness of God's law, the inflexible holiness of God's law. When you're in that court, you are judged by the standard of strict, absolute righteousness according to God's law. 
as Psalm 97, 2 through 3 says, Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. That's the court of judgment. And therefore, Psalm 94, 1 and 2 says, O Lord God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. That's the throne of judgment in the court of judgment. A throne of absolute righteousness. And judged by that standard, the verdict of verse 4 has fallen and we are dead to rights, guilty and unclean. Crimes and uncleanness abound. And the verdict is guilty, condemned. But God has a second court in his tribunal. And that's the court of appeals. And that's point two. The court of appeals, however, is ruled by mercy according to the grace of the gospel. Psalm 30, verse 8 says, To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. In the court of appeals, how do you plead? In the court of judgment, you either say, how do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? That's it. Like in a regular old court. Guilty or not guilty. In the court of appeals, how do you plead? You plead, mercy. Mercy. Not guilty or not guilty. We already know you're guilty. That verdict's already in. The only plea is, O Lord the judge, mercy, mercy, mercy. And you only get in the door of that court through repentance. You repent of the sin you've been condemned for and are guilty of, and you turn and you bring it into the court of appeals, and you throw yourself upon the mercy of the judge. And you plead mercy, God's mercy. And Christian, God always judges for you in the court of appeals. He always judges for you in the court of appeals. And that's why the psalmist can say in Psalm 116 verse 1, I love the Lord Because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. 1 John says, we love him, not because we loved him first. We love him because he loved us first. We love him because when we came to the court of appeals with repentance and turned from that sin and looked to that throne of mercy that he sits upon called the mercy seat, when we came to that throne of mercy and we lifted up our voice and we pled, mercy, mercy, he heard our voice and your plea for mercy. He loved us with his mercy 
and therefore we love him in return. This is what David does in our text. Look at verses 1 and 2 of our text. Have mercy on me, O God, according to what? My best intentions, my turning over a new leaf, according to I didn't mean to do it or I feel real bad. No. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your steadfast love. That's a covenant-keeping love. That's a promise-keeping love. That's a gospel-giving love. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Take that old record and take the white out and blot it out. Clean my record. Cleanse it. Take it away. Make it as though it never happened. According to your mercy, according to your steadfast love, your abundant, overflowing mercy, blot out those crimes. Forgive these offenses. Blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Blot out the legal stain on my record and then wash away that iniquity that's down in my heart. And cleanse me from my sin. You see, David repents and flees to God's mercy. And he cries out to have both of those stains washed away. The stain on my legal record before you, my crimes. And the stain on my moral record against you, my heart. My iniquitous, sinful heart. Wash it. Rinse it. Make it clean and new and pure. Cleanse me from the evil inside me and pardon me for the evil I have committed. David came to the throne of mercy, the court of appeals, and God answered his prayer. And he was forgiven. He was restored and he was made new. To see that, we come to point three. As David continues his pleas, He describes what God does for us when he accepts our repentance. And what God does, verses 7 through 12, is he frees us from our crimes and he cleans up our uncleanness. And the the verses sort of go one after another. So we have, they sort of go back and forth. Frees us, cleans us, frees us, cleans us, frees us, cleans us. And sort of a poetic, uh, poetic structure. So we see that God frees us from those transgressions in verses 7, 9, and 11. Take a look. He says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let your mind race off to Isaiah chapter 1, where the prophet, speaking in the name of God, says for God, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though your sins are scarlet red, I will wash them and make them whiter than snow. That record will be clean. Purge me and I will be clean. If you wash me, I will be whiter than snow. It's not a legal fiction where God just says, let's, okay, I'll just turn a blind eye. Let's just pretend you didn't do it. Promise not to do it again? Okay, I won't look. It's not that. 
He actually takes it away so that your crimes, your sins are really forgiven and they are gone. Gone. You have been purged. You are whiter than snow when his mercy washes you clean. Verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out. There's that language of cleansing. Blot out all my iniquities. Verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Don't throw me out. Don't throw me out and don't leave me without your Holy Spirit. God frees us from what our crimes deserve. Then he talks about cleansing in verses 10 and 12. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That's ultimately the problem. Because God can clean your record all he wants and forgive you of all the sins all he wants. But if you still have that old unclean heart, you're just going to go right back at it. You're not going to be different. You're not going to be changed. You're not going to be new. You're just going to have what you tell yourself as an excuse to keep on sinning. Oh, I'll sin. I'll just, I'll just give forgiveness. God loves to forgive. So I'll just I'll sin, ask for forgiveness. I'll get it, because he always answers that prayer right. Point two, I was listening. And then I'll just go right back to it. What's the problem? Now, none of us really, I think, think that way explicitly, but, but we do it. We assume that that's what we believe when we act like that. I'll just get forgiven. God has unlimited forgiveness. So what's another sin going to hurt? Be careful. Be careful. That's that old heart that hasn't really repented. And because the heart hasn't changed, the repentance is inauthentic. And because the repentance is inauthentic, you're not going to get the answer you want in that court of appeals. Because God sees our hearts. No, we need to pray verse 10. And we need to make it a daily habit. (laughs) Get up in the morning. Today, God, create in me again today a clean heart and renew Today, this morning, a right, steadfast spirit within me. Because that's my ultimate problem, is I got a bad heart that likes to transgress. Change my heart and clean it up. Make me new. That's what we need to be made new. And when we repent, God changes that heart. He really does clean it up, wash it up, and change it. He convicts us by his spirit and leads us to repentance. And when we repent, he makes us new every time. And what's the result? The result is verse 8. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. This is what David said in Psalm 32 that my bones were wasting away when I hid my sin. But when I confessed it, he gave me new life. That's the same thing here. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is what ultimately we get when we get forgiven, when we repent, God cleans us up. 
He brings back the joy, the joy that sin just consumes and sucks right out of us. The joy of his salvation, the joy of knowing you're forgiven, the joy of feeling that new heart beating in your chest. And knowing that you are different, you have been changed, and you didn't do it somehow to yourself. God is just making you new, changing you. When you go to him and go to that court of appeals and fall before the mercy seat and plead his mercy, and he forgives you and cleans you up and makes you new and gives you that joy that you were missing, the joy that your slack spiritual life needs, the joy that your disinterest needs, that fire to be lit again that loves and longs and lives for him. He can restore that. He can give you the willing spirit you need that wants to follow and wants to obey. That's what God is offering when you will just take that old heart, take those old sins, give them to him, repent, lay them down, leave them there, walk away, and he gives you everything you need. He gives you everything you need. A new heart, a new record, a new walk, a new spirit, new joy, new power to live for him. So Christian, flee to the court of appeals today where God is seated on a throne of mercy. Mercy that was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Take your sin to Jesus and ask him to take that blood and blot out your sin. Nothing but the blood can blot out our sin. Appeal to him. Appeal in his name to the Father and plead the mercy that Christ guaranteed to you if you will repent and believe. And God will cleanse your record. You will be washed in the blood of Christ. You will be changed to be more like Christ. He will clean your record. He'll clean your heart. He will restore the joy of your salvation, and he will make you new. And you will be the kind of creature you never imagined you could be, forgiven, whole, free, powerful, joyful, and you will run, run in the ways of the Lord. So Christian, take Psalm 51, the classic model of Scripture for how to repent. Take Psalm 51 and work it into your own practice, your daily rhythm of repentance, and use some of these lines. Memorize a verse like Psalm 51.10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. If that's your morning prayer, you won't recognize yourself in a month. Because God will answer that prayer. You're that close to being the Christian you always wanted to be. You're that close. No matter where you are in your walk today. You're this close. Seize it. Take it. He, he wants more for you. I want more for me. And I want more for you. The riches are here. Take a psalm like Psalm 51 and work it into the warp and woof of your day and see the new creature you are in Christ and will be in practice. Use it as a model. Cry out to the Lord. Plead for his mercy. Know the cleansing and the healing and the power and the joy of being forgiven when we repent of sin. Why would we miss out? Why would we miss out? Come to Christ and let the Lord wash you white as snow.
so that you can live white as snow for him through his mercy, through his grace, and in his love, which is unending, ever flowing, always available, ready to be taken to the one who repents and believes and asks for it. Let's ask for it. Let's pray. Father, we ask for it. We plead mercy. I, a needy, broken, feeble, faulty, flawed sinner, Wesley Grubb, asks for the mercy to forgive me for my many transgressions, to save me from the guilt, to spare my mind and conscience, to heal me, to cleanse me, to make a new heart in me, a heart that gets up each day and wants to be like this, that wants to look like Jesus and feel a new heart inside me. It doesn't want sin anymore. I want to feel that kind of heart. I want that kind of spirit that I can feel in me yearning for more holiness and less of the world. I want that. I'm not there. I need your mercy. Give it to me. I repent today in dust and ashes. I despise the man that I once was. I rejoice that I am not the one, the person I used to be. I need you today. We need you today. May we all pray this prayer together. May we all long to have that clean heart. No matter how clean our hearts already are, there's always more. So, Lord, we are standing on the edge. We're standing on the edge. Let us feel you call us out deeper, higher, farther than we've been. And let, just give us the joy. Teach us to repent. Make us new. Wash us clean. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.